If you need a Bible, just slip your hand up, and one of our ushers will bring you a Bible. We want to make sure you're there with us. And we're moving through the book of Leviticus, Sermon 13, I think it is, uh, this morning. And as we move through the book, we are reminded again and again of this reality of a gap that exists between God and ourselves. And, and the misery of gaps is a difficulty that we deal with all throughout our lives. Uh, you know, if you, if you want to travel abroad, you need a passport. You don't have a passport, you can't travel abroad. You want to get from point A to point B, and you can't get from A to B because you don't have the document. And so there's a gap, and you don't have what it takes to cross that gap. That to get to that destination. In fact, the, the less mature you are, the more gaps there are. You remember that there was a certain time when you weren't old enough to get the license that allowed you to drive, that allowed you to get from point A to point B. You remember probably younger than that, when you would show up at the carnival or you know, Six Flags or something, and you see the sign there that says, must be this tall to ride. And you weren't yet that tall, and so you couldn't ride, and you just wanted to get on that ride, and so there's a gap. You want to be on the ride. You can't get on the ride because you don't meet a certain requirement. There's this distance. There's this gap. You can't get in. And all those gaps are about access. You can't access Europe without the passport. You can't access anywhere that you need to drive without the license, and you can't access that ride without the height requirement. And maybe you remember being tempted to wear extra thick shoes, or get up on your toes a little bit, or try to pay the attendant off, or something like that. But think about how that misses the point. They're not arbitrarily coming up with a height. They don't want you to die. I just want to enjoy the ride. I just want to get on the ride. It looks so fun. I saw the pictures. My friends are enjoying it. I want to enjoy the ride. We don't really care about the height requirement. We just want the fun. Brothers and sisters, I think that's why we often skip Leviticus. We just want to get to the ride. Let's go. Let's get to the the, the resurrection stuff. Let's get to the good news stuff. Let's get to the the, the joyful stuff. Let's get to the verses that we have on our mugs, uh, in our cabinets. Let's get to the verses that we put on our refrigerator, the, the verses that our kids paint downstairs. You know, let's get to those verses. That's like the little kid going, ah, let me just wear thicker shoes. I just want to get on the ride. Leviticus prompts you, forces you to slow down and deal with this reality that there is a gap. There is a height requirement that we don't reach. There's uh, documents that we don't have. There's a test that we don't pass. And so therefore, as much as you want to get on the ride, as much as the ride maker wants you to enjoy the ride, you can't because there's a gap between us and our creator. So, We're going to look at uh, kind of a a backdoor way to to this reality because we're going to see it in the priestly regulations. Now, if if we're tempted to skip Leviticus, we convince ourselves to read through Leviticus. Within Leviticus, if there's chapters that you're tempted to skip, it's the chapters on priests, right? Um, Like, I'm not a priest. You you might think, "I'm, I'm not a priest, but this is just so foreign, so ancient. But it's through these priestly regulations that God demonstrates and teaches what this gap is like. And so we need to look at it. So we're going to be in Leviticus chapter 21 and 22. So when we cover two chapters like this, I can't get at every verse. Some of you, 
extra spiritual, extra nerdy, might lament the fact that we don't get to every verse, and others of you are already thanking God. You're already praising God uh, that um, promising not to cover every single verse here. If you look at chapter 21, God focuses in on the priests, and he uses the regulations for the priests, the do's and don'ts for what the priests uh, are called to do, to point to the reality of the gap between God and man. And he points to that reality, first off, by in, in how they handle the dead, the deceased. Okay, we see that in the first seven verses. And the Lord said to Moses, Speak to the priests, the sons of Aaron, and say to them, No one shall make himself unclean for the dead among his people, except for his closest relatives, his mother, his father, his son, his daughter, his brother, or his virgin sister who's near to him because she has no husband. For, he may take him, uh, for her he may make himself unclean. He shall not make himself unclean as a husband among his people, and so profane himself. They shall not make bald patches on their heads, nor shave off the edges of their beards, nor make any cuts on their body. They shall be holy to their God, not profane the name of their God, for they shall offer the Lord's offerings, the bread of their God. Therefore, they shall be holy. So when he talks about cuts and shaving the head, he's not saying God has a dress code and you have to dress. He's, he's again, he's echoing those Canaanite rituals, how they would mourn the dead. And so they would mourn themselves by cutting themselves, by shaving themselves. And he's saying, you're not going to mourn like that. And in fact, you can't even touch the dead body unless it's certain relatives, certain kin that are really close. And then he ramps it up for the high priest. These are regular priests, but just look at a couple verses in uh, verses 10 uh, to 12. The priest who was chief among his brothers, so he's going to raise the bar, on whose head the anointing oil is poured and who has been consecrated to wear the garments, shall not let the hair of his head hang loose nor tear his clothes. They're the, the mourning rituals. He's not even allowed to mourn his lost loved ones. He shall not go into any dead bodies or make himself unclean, even for his father or for his mother. You know, when you stand by the casket and it's like that finally, final, you know, goodbye. No. Not for the high priest. Pretty tough. He shall not go out of the sanctuary lest he profane the sanctuary of his God for the consecration of the anointing oil of his God is on him. I am the Lord. And so I think now that we're at chapter 21, you can kind of get the rhythm of what we're doing here. You can look at the verses detached from the rest of Scripture and kind of scratch your head. Why is he picking on death in particular? But if you look at it as one whole unit especially the first five books of the Bible, they're one book. They're the Torah, the Pentateuch. So Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, they go together as one whole book. So you're supposed to remember this life and death theme that started as soon as you began the Torah in the book of Genesis. God is the author of life. He creates life in Adam and Eve, and they have access in the garden to the tree of life. And the tree of life is there, and they're not supposed to touch the other tree. But once they commit that sin and touch the other tree, they're ousted from God's presence. They can't be in the presence of the author of life because they've sinned, because they've created this gap between him and them. And because they cannot be in the presence of the one who gives life, they can't have life, therefore they have death. So what does death represent? Death represents separateness from God. So God is not just, let me, what would be really tough for a priest? Can't even show up to his mother's funeral. Let's do that one. Let's just, let's just make it really hard. It's not random. 
He's communicating you can't be around death, especially the priest, and then especially the high priest, because you're supposed to represent closest proximity to me. And death is the opposite of proximity to me. I'm life. So it's not that God doesn't like funerals. He doesn't think we should mourn. No. He's communicating something about himself and that holiness is about life and that unholiness is about death. So the curse is introduced in Genesis chapter 3, verse 24, or verse 19. Adam is cursed, and he says, you're still going to eat bread, but it's going to be, you're going to work really hard to eat that bread. And then you're going to return to dust. You're dying now. You're going to get old, and then you're going to die. You're already spiritually dead. Your physical body just got to catch up to that reality. There's the gap. And then there's one object that God puts an angel there to protect so that no one touches it. That's a tree of life. In other words, you can't access life now. So then God reinserts himself into humanity in the tabernacle, in the sanctuary, and the priest is the one that's closest to him, and he's saying, death, you touching death is the opposite of what we're trying to communicate here. What we're trying to communicate here is you being close to me is life. So that's why death was taken so seriously. That's why we have all those blood chapters and blood laws that we've covered before. And I think that still communicates today. I mean, death is all around us. And I don't think we take Leviticus to say we shouldn't show up at funerals, but we understand why he wanted priests to not do that. Now, I don't walk into a holy of holies. I don't wear a special garment that communicates I'm in God's presence in a way that other people aren't. So I can't say I don't go to a funeral. But we do need to take to heart what's going on in a funeral. Why is there death? Why do people die? Every time I experience signs of aging, and it reminds me that the clock is winding down for me, not up. What, what, what is that communicating? It communicates the gap. It communicates the gap. So the author of Ecclesiastes said it's better to go to a funeral than to a feast. Is at feasts, at festivals, at parties, we eat, we drink, we forget about our worries, but at a funeral, you are reminded of the stark reality that this is going to be you. It separates us from God. Death is the ultimate sign of separation from God. It's this reality of a gap. So he communicates it one way through how the priests handle the deceased. He communicates it another way through deformities. This is, again, if you just look at this cursory glance, you're like, man, God is really kind of unfair. He has nothing against people with deformities, just like he has nothing against people going to funerals. He's communicating something through this. But certain priests, just because they were Levites, Uh, They they could still not have access to God's presence if they were deformed in some way. So we see that in verses 16 and 24. Uh, Still chapter 21. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to Aaron, saying, None of your offspring throughout their generations who has a blemish may approach to offer the bread of his God. So their blemish doesn't just mean kind of a little acne scar or something like that. It goes on to describe that these are um, 
you know, include mutilations, they include injuries, hunchback, dwarfism is the best guess of what the translation is there. If somebody's neutered, I'm putting that in quotes. Uh, so th those are different kinds of damages uh, that a person can either be born with or experience in life, and that brokenness uh, in a priest's body, physical body, bars that priest from being able to go in. Now he's not tall enough okay, to go into the sanctuary because of those mutilations, those deformities. And then later on in chapter 22, when God is talking about the kinds of animals to bring for sacrifice, he goes into a similar list of deformities. This is chapter 22, verses 17 and following. Uh, God talks about uh, that for an offering to be acceptable, it has to be without blemish. It can't have... Um, it can't be blind, it can't be disabled, it can't be mutilated, it can't have rashes, itches, scabs, all these kinds of things in order to present that bull or that lamb. So the priest can't have blemishes, damages, uh, deformities, uh, neither can the animals that are brought in to be sacrificed. Why? Again, I think Genesis is the appropriate backdrop to this. Why is anyone born with a deformity? Why are injuries that we experience permanent? Did God create things that way? Well, no. Just as the fall introduced thorns into roses, the fall introduced uh, deformities into humanity, as well as permanent injuries. So it's a reminder we're not in the garden. We're not supposed to have uh, one leg shorter than the other. We're not supposed to be blind. We're not supposed to be deaf. We're not supposed to be unable to speak. Uh, we're not supposed to be born with missing limbs. This is not normal. We, we're supposed to kind of sense that. And God puts the stipulation there not to be mean to the deformed priests, but instead to communicate that this, is never, this was never the intention. When I was dwelling with man in perfect harmony in the garden, nobody was deformed there. This is sin that has created this gap, and therefore deformities, mutilations, permanent injuries also communicate, as death does, that things aren't right. We're not experiencing life the way life is supposed to be. And God is saying, in my presence, there are no imperfections. In my presence, there are no deformities. In my presence, there are no broken things. Things are whole in my presence. It's because of this gap that things aren't whole. It's because of this gap that people experience these things. So if somebody... is is permanently injured or has experienced some kind of deformity or mutilation and reads this and is like, wow, I'm extra on the out. It's the opposite. We should be encouraged that God is reminding us that he's taking us somewhere, and that somewhere means the removal of those injuries, deformities, birth defects, and the like. But it communicates that there's this distance between us and him. And if we think that there's a greater distance between a deformed person and, you know, we're all deformed. We are all unholy. He's just using that as a picture to remind all of us of the gap. Of this gap. So when we see death around us, when we see people that are injured, disabled, um, wrestling with birth defects, we should be reminded and encouraged that this is not the way it's supposed to happen. There's a gap. 
And this is why Paul reminds us in 1 Corinthians 15 that where God is taking us is not just to save you out of your cruddy, aging, aching, deformed body and we're going to be like spirits floating around in heaven. Right? We're going to get bodies like Jesus had a body. We celebrate an empty tomb. Not a tomb that still has a decaying body in it, but Jesus is spiritually resurrected and we're all going to be spirits, see? We deny the bodily resurrection of Christ when our view of eternity is we're floating spirits floating around. No, no, no. Whole bodies. And how does Paul describe it in 1 Corinthians 15? Bodies that were perishable, you're dying now. Now your body's going to be imperishable. Bodies that are weak, now are powerful. So you'll still have your body, but now whole. And in fact, if you follow the thread in that chapter, Paul makes the argument that your bodies aren't just going to go back to being as good as Adam and Eve's bodies were pre-fall. They're going to be better. Because these bodies you inherited from Adam, your new body you inherited, inherited from the new Adam, Jesus Christ himself. That, that's awesome. That is awesome. God's plan is to redeem you totally, not just your soul, and just leave your body behind. It's your whole thing. God created you physically. So he's redeeming that. And so holiness, when you're reading through the the book of Leviticus, has to do with wholeness, a whole person to be inside his sanctuary, because to be with God means that a person that's with him in relationship is whole. And so the regulations that he gives the priests create this picture of the gap between damage and wholeness. And he's seeking to close that gap. Uh, I love that he uses not just negative examples, which those are. Death is a negative example. There's a gap. There's a distance. Deformities is a negative example. There's a gap. There's a distance. But he also uses positive examples to show what togetherness looks like. In other words, God is not just on a mission to show there's a gap. I just want you to know there's a gap. Goodbye. His his mission is to demonstrate that there's a gap and then show you how he's going to close this gap. So we can't skip the first part. The person that just wants to get on the ride and have fun with Christianity and doesn't understand the gap, they they really can't get on the ride. The person that thinks that they can just doctor their shoes to to get tall enough on their own. They feel like they can get on the ride that way. It can't happen. So God communicates clearly over and over again. There's a gap. There's a gap. Don't forget there's a gap. There's a distance. There's a chasm. And it's abysmal. You can't cross it. But then he also in his grace demonstrates, but I'm doing something here to close it. I want you in relationship with me. And one of the ways he communicates that in this chapter, which I think is beautiful, it's not you have to kind of turn it around because the way he puts it is very stark, is very blunt, but it's through the picture of marriage. It's through the picture of marriage. So God communicates he's closing the gap by demonstrating uh, it through the regulations to the priests on marriage. He wants them to protect marriage as a picture of monogamy. Okay? Look at chapter 21, verse 7. 21, verse 7. Here's how priests should marry. 
They shall not marry a prostitute or a woman who has been defiled, neither shall they marry a woman divorced from her husband, for the priest is holy to God. And then you have the bar raised again for the high priest in verses 13 to 15. He's talking about the chief of the priests there, and he says, He shall take a wife in her virginity, a widow or a divorced woman or a woman who has been defiled or a prostitute. These he shall not marry, but he shall take as his wife a virgin of his own people, that he may not profane his offspring among his people, for I am the Lord who sanctifies him. This is not just about sin. Some of it involves sin. Prostitution clearly is not something that the Bible approves of. But then you have the widow. Well, what the widow do wrong? Well, it's not about doing something wrong. It's just the fact that a widow, if a widow moves on and has another husband, in her life, in the lifespan, it wasn't just one husband. Not as a fault, not as a sin, but just in, in the lifespan. You couldn't just hang out and be a young widow back then. You needed to be a part of a family. So it's assumed the widow would remarry, but the priest can't. He didn't give that law to everybody because the widow needs, needs marriage. It's not a moral judgment. It's a picture of oneness throughout a lifetime, oneness in relationship with someone else. Now, obviously, that's the ideal in marriage, and this is why the Bible is so strict on adultery, all right? even adultery of the heart. It's strict on it. And the reason why the Bible has strict rules about divorce is because God wants to protect that picture. He wanted priests to protect the picture of marriage. And what is it a picture of? Well, unity with God. Marriage is always a picture of unity with God. And this is why he puts these rules for the priests. It's a, it's a, a picture of ultra-monogamy, ultra-oneness throughout person's life. So if you read, for instance, the easiest place to think of is, is the book of Hosea. And a lot of prophets that you read about had really awesome callings, and they get, you know, they call fire from heaven, and they're fed by ravens, and they, they experience all kinds of stuff. Hosea, you know, poor guy, you know, his calling was to be cheated on, you know? Uh, God is like, hey, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to get you a wife, and he's like, oh, cool, finally, right? And God is like, yeah, but she's going to be really bad. <laughs> she's going to cheat on you constantly. Um, and Hosea doesn't have to just find this out. He knows up front, marrying this woman, she's going to be unfaithful to Hosea. So what happens? They get married. He loves her. He does what he can as a husband. She cheats on him, right? She's running around, and he's devastated, clearly. But then God says, and now I want you to go buy her back in the marketplace. She, that's how far gone she is. She's on a block in the middle of the farmer's market, center of town, uh, for sale. God says, I want you to buy her back because that's what I do with my unfaithful people. They're unfaithful to me and I buy them back. They create the gap, I close the gap. That's what God is communicating in the book of Hosea. So Hosea uses marriage as a picture of what? Unity between God and his people. See this again in Ephesians 5 where Paul says, remember back when God created man and woman and the two became one flesh? I'm telling you that marriage, that creation of marriage refers to Christ and the church. Christ and the church are married. 
And Christ and the church being married is not a picture of human marriage. It's the reverse. Human marriage was originally created in the garden to picture a covenant relationship between God and man, ultimately between Christ and the church. I just want, I just want to unpack this a little bit. Uh, so we're going to turn. You don't have to turn there, but you can. But I want to take you to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. And then we'll just come back to Leviticus for a few minutes for kind of our home stretch. But I think we lose this in our marriages and the days where you're really struggling, the times for those of you who are married where you're tempted to consider divorce, the times where you're tempted to just cheat a little bit. Uh, it's not just, oh, life is going to be really hard. Oh, you're, you're going to you know, get embroiled in, in you know, in court and lawyers and money and, oh, it's going to devastate your kids. You know, don't buy into the lie that they'll never get over it. All those things are true. All those things are true. But that's not the ultimate reason why we protect marriage. The ultimate reason why we protect marriage is because when we don't, we destroy the picture. And it's a picture of the gospel. Or so 2 Corinthians 11, begin in verse 1. I wish you would bear with me in a little foolishness. Do bear with me, for I feel a divine jealousy for you since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. So there he's saying, uh, I'm jealous when you aren't obeying the Lord well, because when you're not obeying the Lord well, I'm realizing, oh, I betrothed you to Christ. You're supposed to be faithful to Christ, and sometimes you're unfaithful like a, an unfaithful spouse. So he's using the analogy the way it's supposed to be used. That's what marriage is, an analogy. Verse 3, But I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. You see how he makes the connection again to Genesis? This is about the original marriage. And just as Eve ate that fruit originally and had the first breakdown of the first marriage, now in Corinth, Paul is saying, by your uh, being deceived, by your being led astray, you are breaking down this marriage. Verse 4, For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. So, for the Corinthians, what is the ultimate way that they destroy the picture of our betrothal to Christ. Well, it's buying into another gospel. It's believing something else about the gospel that isn't true about the gospel. So marriage, at its core, maybe you weren't taught this in your premarital counseling. Maybe you had no idea this was true. But you're learning now. And hopefully, those of you who are married, hopefully you can discover this together with your spouse. Those of you who aren't married... Be careful not to jump into a marriage unless that other person is on the same page with the purpose of marriage, which is to display the gospel. And when we don't do marriage well, what we do is we damage, we taint the gospel. What we're supposed to be doing with marriage is displaying the unity of the gospel, the beautiful picture of the gospel, which is what? As terrible as we are, as distant as we are, we're, we're too short, we're too young to drive, we're too, 
you know, incompetent to get our passports. We can't close the gap ourselves on any front. But God in his love and in his faithfulness closes the gap, not based on the performance of the other, but based on the performance of his own love. So as soon as we start getting into arguments and difficulties in our marriage and we focus on the, on the failures of the other person, that is already the reverse of the gospel, which you enjoy not because of what you did, but because of what someone else did for you. It's an extension of grace. It is built on the foundation of forgiveness, not performance. And so the exchange of marriage vows is not contractual. If you do this, then I'll love you. If you do this, then I'll stay with you. It's in death. It's in sickness. It's in terrible performance. It's in failures. I will love you. Not out of my own human will, but out of the way that Christ loves the church. So that's why in Ephesians 5, Paul's injunction to husbands is to love your wives. Not based on how well your wife is doing right now. <laughs> to love them. So that's what marriage is supposed to look like. And if you look carefully, Leviticus helps you with your marriage. He, he's, he's helping the priest see this is what marriage is supposed to picture. This is what death pictures. This is what deformities picture. And this is what marriage signifies. Signifies unity with God that is based on the gospel of Jesus Christ. So God makes a way for us to close the gap. He makes a way to restore a separated people to himself and restore them to wholeness. And he does that himself. Really quickly back to Leviticus and look at how he ends this section. Look at how this section closes at the end of chapter 22. I think it's beautiful. A lot of laws, it's deformities, it's death, it's don't marry these people, and, and it's, it's, it seems so strict and so weighty, but we understand what God is doing. He wants us to get on that ride. He wants us to get on that plane to enjoy the travel. He's creating the passport for us, and it's all on him. Look at verse 31. So you shall keep my commandments and do them. I am the Lord. Now, right there, you're like, well, see, I got to create the passport. I've got to do it. No, 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 no. You've got to follow through on what God sets up. Listen. And you shall not profane my holy name that I may be sanctified among the people of Israel. I am the Lord who sanctifies you. Not sanctify yourselves and I'll check in later and see if you're up to par. I'm doing it. And then I, I love verse 33. I'm the Lord who sanctifies you who brought you out of the land of Egypt to be your God. I am the Lord. I brought you out for a purpose. I didn't bring you out to leave you hanging. I didn't, I didn't bring you out to see if you can be good enough. I didn't bring you out to see if you can hack it. I brought you out so I can do something with you. I brought you out so I can have ownership over you. I brought you out so I can be your God, and I'm going to make that happen by me sanctifying you. So yeah, there are days where you don't live up to holiness. There are days where you realize the gap is still there. Like We're not perfect. But God reminds us over and over again that he's the one that sanctifies us. 
If you'll just bear with me a couple more seconds. He emphasizes this three different times here in chapter 22, verse 9, in verse 16, and then again in verse 32, the same words, I am the Lord, I am Yahweh, who sanctifies you. I make you holy. So the book of Leviticus has a theme, be holy, be holy, be holy. We're supposed to recognize, man, I I can't really. Yeah, God knows that, but underneath it all, He's the one doing it. He's the faithful husband. We're the difficult spouse, to put it mildly. One day we realize, I'm not the faithful spouse. I'm not at home with God. I'm out in the marketplace on the block for sale. I'm, I'm, I'm totally in no man's land. And it's only then when we recognize the, the, the atrocity of the gap, the complete misery of the chasm between us and God, that God swoops in and buys you back. That God helps you to recognize that he doesn't divorce. He doesn't walk away. He doesn't run when it gets tough. He makes it happen by his grace. And none of us as spouses can say the exact same thing. We all lean on God's unrelenting, sanctifying work by his grace. Our marriages can't be based on works. They'll never display the gospel if our marriages are, dis- are, are based on works, based on the performance of the other person or the performance of myself. If I start every day talking to my kids about Scripture, then we're going to be the perfect marriage. What about those days where it just doesn't happen? The kids aren't paying attention. You didn't understand what the Scripture meant. You know, there's always going to be hiccups and things along the way. But at the end of the day, we're not creating marriages that are based on works because then the marriage doesn't display God at all. And so the word that I want to encourage you with, there's so many different routes to go here. I want to encourage you with the fact that ultimately this is not calling us to be perfect, but it's showing imperfection. There are priests that are deformed. There are priests that their marriages bar them from what they're supposed to do. Oops, the priest was unclean this week. And it ultimately never quite did what it was supposed to do. And so the priesthood points to the need for a perfect priest, a perfect gap bridge builder. Of course, we know that's Jesus Christ who came to be the perfect high priest, who fulfilled everything and was in no way blemished at all. No spiritual failures, no moral setbacks, no sin, but allowed him to be the perfect priest between God and man because he is God and man. And based on that performance, we have access. Finally, you remember that the priesthood is bigger than that. All of Israel was supposed to be priests to the world, right? So you have God and man with a gap, and God elected certain priests to, to, to mediate this gap between God and man. But if you remember Exodus chapter 19, God told the whole nation, you're supposed to be a holy nation, a priesthood. To whom? To all the world. So God and his people with priests mediating them. But the whole purpose of this was to picture what these people are supposed to do, which is to mediate between the world and God. It's like a chain, right? The purpose of Israel was not to just have priests so that they can enjoy God. 
They had priests that demonstrated to them what it's like to mediate between people that aren't with God and mediate and build a bridge to, to be with God. And they're supposed to do that to the whole world. And is that just Israel? Well, it's spiritual Israel, right? Because Peter writes his letter, and he's writing to people from all over the place, and he calls them elect, people that are elect in Christ. And he says, you're the priesthood. And so, brothers and sisters, every single one of us here that are believers, we're priests. Not because we wear holy garments and we walk into holy sanctuaries, but because your body itself is a temple of the Holy Spirit. You've been purchased. You've experienced the perfect mediation with Christ. And we're supposed to mediate between a lost world and God himself. Now, what is one of the primary ways that we do that? Well, in our marriages. It was true then, and it's true now. Your marriage communicates to the world that there's a gap, but God does what it takes to close the gap. So an unbeliever confesses to you they're struggling in their marriage. Your response isn't supposed to be, I don't know, I found Christ and our marriage is perfect. Come to church. That's not the gospel. The gospel is, I know, we experience a lot of the same things, but we have a different foundation for marriage than you do. Our marriage is founded on being a picture. Our marriage is supposed to be a billboard. It displays something. Oh, yeah, what does it display? Now you explain the gospel. That's one thing to say it over a coffee table at Starbucks. It's another thing to live it. It's another thing to go home and go, I know I told you I forgave you for that thing, but I never really forgave you for that thing. And if God was like that, I'd, I'd be lost in the abysmal chasm forever. If God is like, yeah, 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 I forgive you, but in his heart he really doesn't. Ultimately on judgment day, I don't get in. And so I have not been displaying God's grace to you. Would you pray with me? Let's get to the point where the forgiveness is real in our relationship. Some of us maybe have to have those kinds of conversations. Not just because our kids are watching, but because the world is watching. So we lean on God for it. God is the one who sanctifies us. But let's try to be billboards of that sanctifying grace. Let's pray.